What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today I have returning guest, Oliver Berkman, to talk about one of his previous books, all right, an older book uh, called The Antidote. And it was my introduction to him. I absolutely loved it. And yeah, real quick, fun story. So I actually originally reached out to Oliver to talk about The Antidote. And when I did, he was like, sure, let's do it. He's like, but by the way, I have a new book called 4,000 Weeks coming out. So those of you who heard my first episode with Oliver, it's on his newest book, 4,000 Weeks. So this episode was actually recorded a long, long, long time ago. And I was kind of like holding it uh, just uh, because Oliver's like, yeah, we're doing promotion for the new book. Uh, you know, take your time, whatever. But I've been hanging on to it for a while. And I'm like, I, I, I got to get this thing out. So it's been so long that I went back. I did some editing and stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, hopefully it sounds all right. It sounds uh Good, but yeah, it was a phenomenal um, conversation. So yeah, this is such a great book and it's about just, you know, um, how we find happiness and kind of like uh, the, the, the negative effects of like the happiness industry, the self-help movement, the positive thinking, the secret, uh, you know, we talk about all this stuff, you know, manifesting and the law of attraction, all that stuff. But we talk about, you know, how failure can make you more resilient, how you, uh, balance expectations. We talk about so many great things in this episode. So make sure you follow Oliver, head down in the description, grab a copy of The Antidote and his newer book, 4,000 Hours, and for some reason, or 4,000 Weeks, uh, rather. And in case you missed it, I'll link uh, the previous episode as well. So before we get started, real quick, real quick, exciting news. Uh, some of you know, I was laid off in September and fortunately, for, fortunately, I've been fine. All right. I've been fine. You know, it's, it's been a little bit of a struggle, uh, but I've been okay. But anyways, I I've been able to focus fully on my, you know, creative work, uh, you know, the podcast, my writing, um, all sorts of things. Right. And yeah, um, randomly, I've been keeping this on the download randomly. I, I came across this, um, you know, this job listing, uh, from this company I was following on, on Twitter and they're cool. And, yeah, when my when my lovely girlfriend Tristan and I were actually in that hotel because of the rat problem, this happened, and it was early one morning. I'm like, eh, you know, I, I've I've missed working with people, right? Like, I get to talk with people on the podcast, but I miss working with people, even if it's like remotely. So I applied for the job. Uh, I've gone through a bunch of interviews. It was over the Christmas break, so there was a little gap, you know, and all that. And I made it through like interview one, two, uh, and then finally I had the final interview last week. So the great news is. I was given the job offer. All right. So it's, it's awesome. I'm super excited. It seems like a great company. The people I interviewed with seem awesome as well. But anyway, so the reason I'm telling all of you, this is not only just so you know, what's up with your man, Chris, but also, um, uh, I don't officially start until March. So I'm not sure what the podcast schedule is going to be like. Um, I've been you know, able to be very flexible with this podcast, uh, with people all over the country, people all over the world. I recorded people from the UK, Australia, all that stuff. So I got to figure out what the podcast schedule is going to be like. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll keep you all posted. My plan is here's my plan. I'm going to try to bank up a ton of episodes between now and February. I have a bunch of people scheduled, but I'm trying to like just squeeze a bunch of people in just so I can, you know, batch edit, record, and get stuff scheduled out so we can still at least hit like once a week. All right. But I just want to 
update all of you on that. All right. But anyway, anyways, I've talked enough. Uh, before we get started, though, make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter, because all of you following me on Instagram and Twitter, you already knew. You already knew about this job yesterday. And you said, congratulations, a bunch of really nice things. So if you want to join in in the celebration that we have within this community, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewire Soul. And some of you lucky folks are getting this episode a day early. And if you're wondering how that is, uh, if you become a paid subscriber over on Substack, either $5 a month or 50 bucks for the year, uh, you get all of the regular episodes a day early. So do that. If you would like, if not, you get the podcast anyways, uh, publicly, but I do appreciate everybody supporting the podcast by becoming a paid subscriber. Okay. But anyways, that was the longest intro I've ever done in my life. So without further ado, here is Oliver Berkman, uh, to chat about his book, The Antidote. Hello, Oliver. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast to chat about your amazing book, The Antidote. So to kick this thing off, uh, can you first kind of just uh, let us all know, like what inspired you to write this book? I think what inspired me to write that book was that at that point I had been writing a column for the Guardian newspaper for several years about happiness and self-help and productivity and social psychology. And it really struck me, I began to see these patterns emerging that all the kind of techniques that I either experimented with or I looked into the research basis for, all the ones that didn't work and seemed to make matters worse had to do with what I broadly call positive thinking, right? Trying to fill your mind with the right emotions, trying to um, be convince yourself that everything's going to go absolutely brilliantly and uh, to use this as a, as a route to success. And all the ones that seemed to work um, had to do with becoming much friendlier towards negative emotions, sadness, insecurity, the experience of failure, all the rest of it. Not just, you know, so that you could resign yourself to a sad life, but that actually this was a much more resilient, uh, viable way to build a happy and a meaningful life. Um, so it was that pattern that I uh, began to notice. And I guess the target audience is, you know, it's not a very original thing to say, but like people like me and more specifically people who don't believe in and have no time for that kind of awful, over intense, I'm afraid to say very American in the cliche, um, approach to sort of motivation, positive thinking, uh, the idea that if you just fill your mind with the right thoughts, you can do the impossible, but who at the same time actually care about maybe some positive psychological change, who don't think the whole idea of self-help is absurd and should be thrown out. And quite a few British people, I think, probably do think that. Uh, so in some ways, this book, in terms of it being partly for a British audience, was to say, like, actually, maybe there are ways to think about self-help that don't fall into that trap. And I suppose to an American audience, it was saying the same thing, but, but from a perspective that like, maybe you don't need to fall into positive thinking, maybe what you have been sold as the main way to think about self-help and happiness is not the only way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's definitely, uh, this American thing. And, you know, recently last year, I really got into these books about, uh, like the quote unquote happiness industry 
right? Um, because for a long time, especially after I got sober, I got really into like self-help, motivational uh, type books and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, when I kind of realized what, you know, what was really going on and I started, uh, you know, a mindfulness practice, going through therapy and everything, I started to realize that, you know, there, there was kind of this, this weird expectation that everything's supposed to be great, right? Or we just talk our way into happiness and all these other kind of things, right? So, yeah, it seems like one of the biggest mistakes people make when uh, trying to help someone else is like telling them like, oh, just, just think positively, right? Just, just think you know, think about the benefits or think about, you know, uh, the glass is half full, be optimistic, all this. And then there's this whole uh, uh, law of attraction thing that kind of got popularized by the secret. So can you kind of explain for everybody out there a little bit as to why this kind of law of attraction, the secret type mindset doesn't exactly work? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, if we look just for now at that very specific sort of canonical form of positive thinking, which is literally, you know, saying affirmations to yourself, um, trying to banish negative thoughts and, and sort of gin up a big atmosphere of positivity in your brain. This just kind of misunderstands how the human mind works. Um, the, the sort of classic exercise that I talk about in the book is if you try, um, not to think about a polar bear for two minutes. And it's a fun exercise to try or to try to get your friends to try because it's essentially the exact opposite will happen, right? If you try not to think about a polar bear, what you do is you render polar bears salient in your mind and pretty much everybody either just thinks of polar bears or they engage in some incredibly stressful exercise of trying to sort of um, think about something else in order to stop the thoughts of polar bears arising. And that sort of applies to positive thinking because positive thinking is this exercise in sort of declaring negative thoughts to be persona non grata. And that then means that you're sort of constantly on the lookout for negative um, thoughts. And so, you know, negative thoughts are what you're all about. It becomes very a very sort of brittle and fragile way to be because if negative thoughts creep in, you've failed. Um, so it's sort of a constant, it needs constant replenishment. And, um, and, you know, it just really isn't a recipe for anything like uh, happiness. More specifically, when it comes to affirmations, there's been this fascinating research that says that, you know, if you're someone who has low self-esteem, in other words, you're someone who might need affirmations or be drawn to them, and then you sort of repeat to yourself a lot things like, uh, I am a lovable person in the study that I'm talking about. This was the example. A lot of people end up feeling much worse because they sort of are inviting themselves to come up with counter arguments. So they say, I am a lovable person. And then their mind says, well, no, you're not really because of this thing you did today or that thing you did. Um, the mind just doesn't believe it. So we can't control our mind in the simple ego first top-down way that um, positive thinking assumes. That, that's, that's really the problem with positive thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it makes sense too, like, you know, the, the whole uh, polar bear <laughs> test or experiment that, you know, we could do. Something that I personally noticed because my whole life revolved around mental health, addiction, recovery. Uh, my YouTube channel actually started out as just all mental health, addiction, recovery, everything like that. 
But, you know, one of, one of the things that I've realized now since uh, moving away from that, uh, after getting canceled in 2019 and focusing on the podcast, is that I, I feel so much better mentally, right? And for me, it was just because, yeah, I was constantly focusing on it. So I don't know if that's similar. It kind of seems like it is, but my mind was always on it. Right. So it was trying not to think about my depression, my recovery, you know, uh, or, or think about all of the positive things I could be doing or all the tools I could be using. And don't get me wrong. I, I still use all of these tools on a daily basis, but my whole life, like not every book I read is around like anxiety, depression, addiction, different forms of mental illness and all these other things. And I swear, I swear, I felt so much better since making that transition. So, um, yeah. So in the first chapter of your book, uh, you discuss how we try too hard to be happy and how this kind of turns into this like self-fulfilling prophecy for not achieving our happiness. So can you kind of discuss uh, like how this happens? Well, I guess I already did that a little bit uh, in the, my answer to the first question, but I think I could talk here about, um, let me think. I think I could talk here about goal setting, um, which I think is a, is a, is a sort of related case, right? That, that if you try really, really hard to achieve very narrowly defined outcomes, which, you know, might include being happy. Um, what you find is that it, it, it gets in the way of achieving sometimes those specific goals and sometimes just, uh, you know, the, the, the broader kind of meaningful life that those goals were supposed to belong to. And what happens in, um, in the context of goal setting is that you sort of you, you pick one element, like maybe you, you decide that your goal is to become like a millionaire. It, it could be that you, by the age of, I don't know, 30, whatever, I'm long past the age of 30. One problem there is that you, if you fail at that goal, you sort of defined your whole life as uh, having been a failure at that point. But also what you find is that even in, a, even in sort of achieving the goal, people, even if they are successful, they don't pay attention to the, the ways in which, um, all the other things in their lives are connected so that, you know, it, if you just sort of double down on a single goal in that way, it distorts the rest of your life. You might succeed uh, in becoming a millionaire by the age of 30 at the expense of your health, at the expense of your relationships, at the expense of your friendship. So that's an example of like doubling down too much on things. Also, it sort of puts blinkers on you so that you, you're so convinced about the way that you think you're going to implement your recipe for success that you might miss sort of serendipitous opportunities that come up. And there's all sorts of research from business schools that sort of backs up this idea that the truly successful entrepreneurs do not sort of have a vision and then relentlessly try to pursue that specific vision. And it's not true for Steve Jobs. It's not true for anyone who, even who you think uh, their genius sort of works in this way. What actually happens is that they sort of look at the resources they have available to them they throw something together, a bit of a prototype, they put it out and they see what people make of it. They respond to feedback and it's this constant process. So yes, there's all sorts of research uh, that comes out of uh, business schools to suggest that, that that's just not how successful entrepreneurial stories go. This kind of trying too hard to focus on a specific goal. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so funny. My girlfriend and I we were just watching this uh, this YouTube video. I was kind of making fun of, uh, you know, the billionaire morning routine, right? Uh, but but yeah, uh, it, it makes sense too, because there's this idea, right? There's this, I, I don't know, it's, it feels like this kind of conventional wisdom that, you know, there are these set things that they do and they, or they have this vision and, you know, they, they set their eye on the prize. Like, like, for example, going back to the secret, we could talk about like vision boards and things like, I, I do think it's good to have something to kind of motivate you and remind you, you know, and kind of push towards a goal, but kind of like with what you're talking about, um, my life got so much better when I didn't, I didn't make these goals, uh, you know, so much to do with, uh, I guess these extrinsic things, right? So I'm no longer focusing on, you know, like how much money am I going to make this year? What things am I going to buy? What, if, you know, all these other things, right? It's, it's more about building better relationships with my, my girlfriend and my son and, you know, trying to be healthier and all these other things. And what I realized too, is there, there's so much more within my control and kind of like you said, back, back when I was focusing purely on, you know, money and getting, uh, you know, promotions and raises and all that other things were just going right past me. And I love how you like mentioned like that, that kind of serendipity, because something I learned when just like reading all about like, uh, you know, the psychology of luck and, you know, serendipity and all these other things is that we would kind of open ourselves up and just let things happen and just be on the lookout. Uh, you know, we're more likely to find these serendipitous opportunities, you know? Um, but yeah, kind of going back to like, uh, the whole, uh, you know, like mental health aspect and, and kind of what I was talking about at the beginning is like this idea that our life is supposed to be, you know, like quote unquote perfect. So I'm wondering like, uh, with, with so much emphasis on, you know, happiness and self-help, like, do, do you think, or have you noticed like that, that it does seem like people do have this kind of unrealistic expectation? And if not, how do we know when our unhappiness has become enough where we should seek some kind of help, whether it's therapy, life coach, or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. I do think that the sort of emphasis on, on happiness, uh, is, uh, in the culture is, is very often, uh, counterproductive and, um, a negative thing, but at the same time, as you hint, right, you don't want to, you don't want to adopt some viewpoint that says it's all pointless, that, um, like being very depressed is just something you have to accept. It's a very subtle issue, right? Because I think acceptance is incredibly central to um, mental health and staying and becoming mentally healthy. But you've got to be very clear. Acceptance is not about saying that the situation you're in now and the way you're feeling right now always has to be that way and you just have to resign yourself to it. Acceptance is more about accepting that you do feel right now how you feel and that you are in the circumstance that you are in, and you maybe have the illness that you may have, or the addiction or whatever it is. And so much of the culture and of sort of bad self-help, I think is sort of anti-acceptance in that form of acceptance, because it's, it's encouraging you, positive thinking is sort of encouraging you, isn't it? To sort of say, let me just pretend that these things have gone, and I'll sort of live my way into the happy vision that I've created in my mind. And there's this thing you come across in self-help books all the time about how your brain can't tell the difference between something good happening and you imagining something good happening. 
which is obviously absolute nonsense um, because you can always tell that um, that you're imagining it. So that, that's your brain that's doing the imagining and that's making the distinction between between the reality and the fantasy. So I think that this kind of acceptance, this kind of coming back to where you are and saying, okay, I've got to roll up my sleeves and get, go, get to work on, on this, uh, which is where I find myself. And it's sort of okay that I find myself there, right? It's not a moral failing. I think that's the important positive side of the sort of process of sort of destigmatization of mental health that has gone on certainly over the last decade or so. I think it has a sort of negative extreme as well that we could talk about. But I think the very positive part of that is just like we, we have to be able to let people go past the idea that they have done something bad by being afflicted with the particular kind of psychological suffering that they're afflicted by. But we also have to sort of, as, as the person suffering, accept that this is where we are, that we can't just sort of put on a smile and a suit and walk out of the door and it's all been left behind. And then you get into that very special place, as the psychologist Carl Rogers put it, you know, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Um, that, that it's from that perspective of saying, uh, you know, here I am, which is related, I know, to the sort of Alcoholics Anonymous idea of like, I am powerless over alcohol. It's not the only way to do it, but all of these things have in, co in common this notion of just like, okay, back down to earth. Here we are. And now, right, we can start putting some simple steps in place to become a little bit happier today than yesterday or for life to be a bit more meaningful today than it felt yesterday without sort of stressing ourselves out with these counterproductive visions of uh, unbroken good cheer. Absolutely. And Oliver, now you're speaking my language because, yeah, absolutely. Like in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, when I got sober, uh, you know, that's where I got sober and they taught me, they like drilled acceptance into my head right and you know the meetings uh we started with like the serenity prayer where we talked about acceptance and there's a there's a, a section of the aa big book where it uh it talks about acceptance and it's read a lot it's quoted a lot and all this other stuff um you know but uh not only that but i personally quote it and when i was working in rehab i would remind people all the time of this quote from this chapter on acceptance where it says my expectations are inversely proportionate to my serenity, right? And while that's a little bit more about expectations, like I, I've learned to accept the results regardless of where my, uh, you know, expectations were may be, and I try to keep them nice and even. But what really leveled up my acceptance, kind of like with what you're talking about, is when I developed a mindfulness meditation practice. Um, because, you know, I, I realized when just learning about mindfulness and, you know, I got really into the books and took a lot of classes and everything. Uh, what I realized was that I was fighting against these emotions, right? I was fighting against like sadness, anger, irritability, all these other things. Right. And when I learned how to just sit there and accept these things and not try to fight against them, just, it was, it, it was like developing this superpower. You know, when I sat there, I realized like my emotions are not going to kill me and maybe I could just sit with them and let them run their course. And, you know, especially now that I've learned more about like psychology and neuroscience and just know that this is part of the human experience. 
I, I know how to accept these things, you know, but at the same time, kind of like what I was talking about, like there, there have been uh, points where, you know, I have to talk to my doctor, I get on or off <laughs> my antidepressants, I have a therapist and all these other things. Because it reaches a point where my brain isn't doing the thing that I'm trying to train it to do, and I need some of that uh, outside help. But yeah, absolutely. I I, I hope everybody listening <laughs> can understand just how important acceptance is. Uh, it's it's helped me be such a laid back guy. I I can't even describe it. I can go on for hours about this. Uh, but anyways, so the first time I I I heard about this book called The Optimism Bias. And it's funny, I was just actually interviewing somebody and that book came up too. Uh, but I first heard about it from you, from your book, The Antidote. And, you know, uh, I was thinking because I used to have just like this negative outlook on life, right? I had the, you know, pessimism bias. But anyways, can you kind of explain the optimism bias and how it can get us into trouble? Try to remember if I actually wrote about the optimism bias in the antidote, or if you read this in something else I wrote. And if it was in something else I wrote, then I feel less bad about not quite remembering uh, the details of that book. Um, when you're sort of doing this in a journalistic context, as I am, an awful lot of ideas come through your mind and then leave the other side, and it would be uh, impractical to uh, hold them all. Um, what I understand today by the optimism bias, I suppose, is the idea that we are sort of um, wired or conditioned in certain ways to assume a, a greater degree of control uh, a greater degree of sort of efficacy in the world than we actually have that sort of think of ourselves as more um as sort of bigger actors in the universe and to have sort of more optimistic um goals for our um uh, more optimistic predictions of like what we can influence and the effects we can have maybe this isn't what the book the optimism bias says in which case uh, i'm going to be embarrassed but anyway it's an interesting point because it brings me to a topic that I think is very fascinating, which is this idea of um, what's been called depressive realism. It's a little bit contested in the literature, but um, it's this idea that some studies seem to suggest that, that um, depressed people actually have a more accurate understanding of their sort of impact uh, on the world and their degree of power over circumstances and events than non-depressed people, that non-depressed people sort of live through a um, happiness-inducing fantasy that they are sort of have more power to control the course of events and their own future than they really do. This isn't an argument for being depressed, of course, but it just sort of suggests that good, healthy, happy sanity does on some level depend on a kind of a, a mistake. Um, and I think that the way that gets us into trouble is just that it sort of, you know, it, it makes, um, it, it makes the shock of encountering the limitations to your, uh, effectiveness and your abilities and your ability to control the future, all the, all the worse. Um, if you can expect less of the future in terms of how much 
you think you know about how things are going to unfold, you're obviously in a much easier position for sort of going with the flow of what does unfold if you insist that um, you've got to sort of, things have got to go your way, you're, you're, um, you're setting up all these opportunities for reality to deliver a shock that it might otherwise uh, not need to deliver. So who knows if that was what you meant by the question, but I thought it was a fairly interesting thing to talk about in the answer. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I, 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 <laughs> I read the antidote a long time ago. You wrote it a long time ago. Maybe we're both wrong. Maybe we're both right. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, but very, very well said. It, it's just kind of like false idea of control. And and yeah, depressive realism. I actually um, uh, had a, a, a guest on here uh, not long ago, uh, Rebecca from uh, this YouTube channel um, called Skeptic. And we were talking about depressive realism and, and kind of seeing things more for what they are. I, I think a lot about the optimism bias when I think about my anxiety. And it helps me realize that my anxiety isn't always a terrible thing because people are just way, way, way too optimistic about stuff and that can get you in trouble like when we're talking about like anxiety and like being fearless like oh this is gonna be fun like look at covid right like oh i'm not gonna catch it i can go around without being vaccinated or you know whatever it is and uh you know that's the optimism bias putting us in some real danger so sometimes we need to dial back and be like hey maybe my uh my pessimism isn't so so much of a bad thing but um but yeah i wanted to uh kind of follow up and ask you um uh about self-deception as well so for example like if we didn't encourage ourselves to take risks right like so the opposite of you know uh <laughs> being afraid to like take uh risks because of our uh depressive realism or whatever it is so if we didn't uh you know try to take these risks like we'd have a hard time like just moving forward and progressing in life because everything takes takes risks right me reaching out to authors and saying hey do you want to be on my podcast or you know whatever it is so if, if you didn't have some optimism, you may not, you know, be where you are today. Right. So for you, Oliver, like, how do you balance your optimism with pessimism and kind of trying to be realistic? This is a super interesting question. I'm not sure if the self-deception is necessary. There's a difference here between having slightly self-deceiving expectations for the future and having like sort of no expectations at a meditation center that I've been to a couple of times there's a there's a poster on the wall that says something like try not to expect anything in this look in this way life will open to you so I definitely agree that we shouldn't go around with like negative gloomy expectations and I, I am somewhat of a pessimist naturally and I think it's fine but like I'm not really sort of advocating that kind of pessimism. Sometimes that defensive pessimism is a good idea, right? If you, if you have low expectations, um, then you can only sort of be pleasantly surprised or proven right when things go bad. So it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a sort of fairly peaceful place to be. But what I really think is that the thing to aspire to here is sort of to be expectation-less um, or to a slightly greater degree than most of us are anyway not to be perfectionistic about it to sort of go into the future with the feeling as um krishnamurti the 1970s and you know modern day spiritual teacher said uh, that i don't mind what happens right you have your goals you have your intentions you have your preferences for how things would like to you'd like things to go and you're going to put into place take take the actions that seem to best 
most likely to cause those things to happen. But you're not going to sort of have yourself invested in a sort of life or death way in them going the right way. And actually, I think that is a totally great way to sort of be motivated and um, and to do things. I don't think that is a recipe for passivity at all. Um, you know, I'll just speak personally right now as I'm recording this, um, I'm on the just on the eve, two days away from the launch of my new book, which is called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Um, so my head is mainly in that space. And a book launch is such a strange thing, right? Because it could go well, it could go badly. Even if things go well, it's quite likely that they won't go well, like on the day. Nothing is particularly likely to happen on the, on the day that is sensational or anything. Um, and the more that I sort of can hold expectations totally loosely, not self-deceivingly optimistic, but just sort of playfully, well, here goes, the more, the more fun it is, right? And also, I think the freer I am to try things, you know, to ring up the magazine that might want me to write about this book or to put out the funny tweet that might cause somebody to know, you know, whatever it is I'm trying to do to promote myself, which I kind of have a whole other set of issues with but like the more that that's just play because nothing's riding on it the the better i think it goes the more that i'm sort of uh taking risks and doing bold things because i think i really have to have them pay off that life would be very bad if they didn't come off right i think that's a i think that's an impediment um so I don't think, you know, I'm sure we all deceive ourselves a little bit and I don't think it's a problem. It's not something to sort of spend a lot of anxious energy trying to uproot. But I do think that if you wanted to sort of hold in your mind a, a perfect goal for life without beating yourself up for not being perfect at it, that might be to sort of go forward into life expecting nothing, like expect neither expecting the worst nor expecting the best, just being sort of expectationless. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely love that. Like going back to uh, acceptance and that quote from the big book I mentioned about expectations adversely proportionate to serenity. The way I would describe it to people is like, uh, if I'm looking at like a scale, right, with both positive and negative. So you have plus 10, then you have minus 10, you got zero right in the middle. When it comes to expectations, I just try to stay right in the middle. And, and you know, for everybody listening, like I've been doing this for years and it's still it's still hard for me um because you know it, it's difficult we expect people to be a certain way we expect uh you know hard work to pay off uh, as as many people in my audience know i write a lot about you know the myth of meritocracy and you know success for slack and everything because uh when, when you're working on something and you work hard and you're even you know uh like at your job like no matter how hard you work it's not always guaranteed that's going to turn out well so i love that idea of like kind of expectation less and it's something that i'm actually trying to you know teach my son and a lot of books like talk about this uh when it comes to kids right it's it's not about the results it's about the effort you know what i mean and i think and you know i at least i hope that it's helping him with you know these expectations and and trying to be as close to realistic as possible. It's, you know, what I always say is like, you know, if you have these kind of, uh, no expectations, then like, uh, if something good happens, it, it's, you know, it's a pleasant surprise. You know what I mean? Um, but speaking of like 12 step programs, uh, you, you talk about Seneca and stoicism. I've been thinking a lot lately about how, um, 
you know, 12 step programs, like they, they really intertwine stoicism, even though 12 step programs don't even talk, there, there's no mention of the word stoicism, but, uh, it makes sense why I got into stoicism, uh, a few years ago. And I've actually been reading a lot of stoic, uh, books on stoicism lately as well. But, um, you touch on like acceptance versus giving up, right? So it feels like there's this tricky balance between accepting, you know, what is right. And then being too afraid to keep trying. Like, uh, for example, I know a lot of, uh, people in the entrepreneurial, like hustle culture kind of area. And it's just like, yeah, if you stop, you might be missing on your big break. Right. But there comes a certain point where we have like the sunk cost fallacy, where we keep dumping effort into something where we just need to, you know, give up. So anyways, anyways. Are there any tips that you can give? Maybe you use these in, you know, your own work or in your life, right? Do you have any tips on knowing when to give up or acknowledging like, hey, this might just be like a minor roadblock? Tips for knowing when to give up or if we just hit a minor roadblock. I mean, it's a fascinating question, but I don't know whether I have some brilliantly pungent concise answer to it. I think that, you know, what I'm going to bring in here is a thing that I've written about a bunch of times, which comes from the Jungian analyst, James Hollis, who says that when you face a, 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 a choice in life, whether to quit a job or quit a relationship or commit to a job, commit to a relationship, change cities, whatever, a choice like that, you should ask yourself, does the thing I'm planning to do enlarge me or diminish me? Not does it make me happy because we are terrible at predicting what makes us happy. And because the things that make us happy in the short term are often things that leave us sort of unfulfilled in the long term, they're sort of comfortable options instead of exciting ones. And when I look back at these choice points in my own life, I have known sometimes, for example, that um, there was a time almost a decade ago now when I really seriously considered moving back to the UK from the US where I live. And at that time, not now necessarily, but at that time, I realized that doing that would be retreat. You know, it would be running away from questions that needed to be faced. Not necessarily true for someone else, another British person in New York. It might be that going back to the UK was the thing that they needed to do to sort of face the music in their life. But for me, it was staying. And so that kind of way of thinking was very useful then. And I think you could probably apply this to is it time to give up or have you hit a minor roadblock? It's like, you're going to come into challenges in work projects, business ventures, relationships, and you know, you're going to be tearing your hair out because your work or your partner or whatever is sort of driving you crazy. And I think even then you can stop usually get a little bit of distance, take a deep breath and not and ask, you know, okay, this is really exasperating. But which kind of exasperating is it? Is it the kind of exasperating that diminishes me, that really makes me feel like I can't bear the thought of doing this job, being with this person for another goodness knows how many months or years or decades? Or is it the kind that deep down you know is the kind of challenge that will sort of strengthen you and make you and, uh, and leave you sort of um, proved and sort of, you know, forged in the crucible of, uh, of difficulty. And I think mostly people do know the answer to that. And, and that's sort of 
what James Hollis says, you know, if you don't know the answer right away, keep asking and it'll, and it'll come. There's a difference between the kind of setback in a relationship that is called getting to know another real flawed human person really well versus the kind of setback that is like, oh, I'm in a really toxic relationship and this person is abusive and I need to get out. Um, so, and the same applies to other domains beyond relationships, I think. So I think that's what I would say. It's like, don't ask about happiness directly. Ask about these questions about meaning, about are you sort of, can you see that you're growing through, through what you're going through? Uh, you know, maybe in the moment it doesn't feel like that, but if you get a sort of day or two's perspective, can you see that this kind of challenge is the kind of thing that's going to be the making of you? Or is it the kind of challenge that's going to sort of lead you to shrivel up and, uh, and, and, and find life less and less meaningful? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I've, I've asked, uh, you know, a few authors who come out of here, like, I'm always looking for like, you know, give me, give me like a checklist, give me some kind of outline, give me some kind of playbook on when to give up. Right. But it's, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm the type of person where I, I always want that. I want like something for certain, but kind of like you're saying, it, it takes a lot of, uh, self-reflection. I'm glad that you brought up the, um, you know, the example of relationships, right? Because. On one hand, if you're in a relationship and you just give up at the first sign of like, you know, stress, trouble, the first fight, or, you know, whatever, like, did you really give it, you know, a fighting chance? But on the other hand, I, you know, I've personally experienced this and, you know, fortunately I grew out of it, but I know many friends who stay in terrible relationships for way too long. And there's this, this weird thing where like, oh, we fight so much that, you know, it must be worth it or, or we wouldn't be here. Right. But, um, yeah, like does you know, does it bring us happiness, uh, you know, pursuing this thing or, or is it just making me miserable? And it's the same thing with, you know, work with projects, you know, whatever it is. And we kind of got to sit back and assess it. And I, I think, you know, even though you didn't ask me, I'm going to answer <laughs> something that, um, you know, I've realized it's like, you know, uh, you don't need to make a decision on whether to move forward or quit right away. Right. I think it's okay to reflect on things. I think it's okay to write down a pros and cons list and journal about it and really do some deep, deep, deep thinking on some of these things. And do I want to pursue this? But, you know, it kind of goes back to what we're talking about. You know, if, if we're just using a project, like writing a book, for example, or, you know, painting or something creative, and it's like enjoying that process and not expecting a certain result and all of that. Um, but yeah, it's, this is kind of case by case basis and analyzing along the way and all that. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a difficult one, but anyway, anyways, Oliver, I got one kind of final last question for you. Um, and you know, I, I'd love to just, uh, talk about how, how in the book, uh, you discuss how failure can actually be a benefit to us. So when I was reading your chapter on this, I was thinking about how similar it is to rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is my thing. When I discovered rational emotive behavioral therapy, I actually just reread uh, one of the books from uh, the creator of it, whose name I'm forgetting right now. But anyways, um, with this form of therapy, we recognize that, you know, failure sucks, right? It can be bad, but it's not the end of the world, right? So something I personally learned is how it makes a, it makes me more resilient, right? Like when I fail over and over and over and over again, like, uh, for example, I've been doing freelance writing. I, I send out a lot of pitches or, you know, I create a lot of content and sometimes they just fall flat or a pitch gets denied. 
but you know, it, it makes me more resilient because I, I'm kind of being conditioned to realize that that failure or something that didn't go through the way I wanted it to, it's not going to kill me. So, uh, in your opinion, what, what are some of the main benefits? What are some of the things that we can learn from failure and how can we, I don't know, like soften the blow when it happens? I love this topic. I mean, okay. So the old school approach to self-help says failure is not an option. Um, which is just a terrible attitude. I think about like, if I said to my son, my four-year-old son, like when he's trying to learn some new skill or climb up the monkey bars at the playground for the first time, failure is not an option. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> it would be an awful thing to say. Failure's got to be an option. But then you have the second stage, which we've been through over the last few decades, where everyone's writing books and talking about how you've got to be willing to fail. And I have a bit of problem with that too, because you only ever hear this from people who've then come out the other end as being super successful. So in a way, we don't know if they were willing to decisively fail, do we? I mean, Richard Branson talks about being willing to fail, but Richard Branson is kind of a huge success. So would he be able to cope with actually just literally being like living in obscurity and all his business dreams having failed, failed, failed? Who knows? Maybe, but maybe not. So I think there's a real kind of question here. You, when I talk about the kind of failure that I think we need to be willing to experience, it really is something to do with the possibility that none of your sort of most closely held ambitions could work out at all. Not just that en route to becoming a big deal, you're going to experience some setbacks, but that like you could never become a big deal or whatever the equivalent ambition is in your life. And that's where the rational motor behavioral therapy and the Albert Ellis stuff comes in because he was the progenitor of that approach because, um, that's when you see that actually the worst case happening in almost every context in life is not actually the end of the world. I mean, but nothing is quite the end of the world, except like the end of the world which we, I suppose, may be heading to in other ways, but let's leave that aside for now. Ellis had this great distinction. He always liked to point out that like very bad experiences, very, very bad experiences, even extremely bad experiences are not the same thing as absolutely bad experiences. And he would sort of um, go a bit far, I think, saying things like, well, you know, it's not an absolutely bad experience if someone very close to you is tortured and killed because it could be that 10 people close to you were tortured and killed. And I think people understandably sometimes took that as being sort of a little bit distanced from how emotions really work. It would be, of course, it's absolutely terrible for that to happen to one person you know or love. Um, but I think the, the point that's sort of hiding there a little bit is that we do, I think, forget that in every situation to some degree, and most situations to a large degree, there's, there's wiggle room. There's capacity to see that, um, you know, our, our thoughts and our emotions about something going wrong when we're thinking about it happening in the future usually are at this apocalyptic level, even when the actual thing is not like that. So something for me that's always been an issue is I'm like really bad at confrontation when, even when confrontation needs to happen, you know, if I need to have a sort of fairly stern conversation with someone where I stick up for myself or something like that, 
I'm kind of, I hate the idea that someone else might be mad at me or like almost anybody might be uh, being mad at me. I don't just mean like, you know, my nearest and dearest or a person who could fire me, but it's like anybody being mad at me. I, I really, really hate that idea. But when I examine my feelings about that, it's really strange because it, it, they don't add up, right? They're, they're sort of, they are, they make it feel like the thing is life or death and it almost never is going to be uh, life or death. Because I'm not talking about confrontations in bars with someone who could like beat me up. I'm talking about like some business back and forth where you have to ask someone to pay you a bit more money than, than they wanted to and you're worried that they're going to like be cross or laugh at you for asking or something. It's just like the stakes are not that high. If the thing happens that you, that you were hoping to avoid, like it won't be that bad. And I've almost noticed that when these things do happen, you know, sometimes things do go wrong and people are mad at you or you do have an argument in the moment of it actually happening, I'm perfectly good at coping with it, right? It's only this prospect, this idea that failure, um, would be absolutely, would be absolutely terrible. So I think, you know, the, the come back to your last question that how to soften the blow is really to, to internalize a bit of this perspective. I came across some fascinating work when I was researching the book that um, prior to kind of like, I think it was like the 19th century or the early 20th century in America, um, we didn't talk about people as being failures in the way that we sometimes do now. We would talk about someone having made a failure, that a venture they had engaged in uh, was a failure. But it was a whole sort of set of historical changes, including fascinatingly, the development of credit ratings agencies that would sort of started to put a, a grade, like you're a failure or you're, or a success onto a whole person. And then it's kind of, you can see why it feels like annihilatory in a way for, um, it to be the case that you've been deemed a failure rather than just that your particular plan, uh, was a failure, a particular relationship, a particular venture. Um, and so I think the other thing that Albert Ellis and REBT that they were really, he was really big on, and I think is very true and wise is really to try to cultivate this notion that like you, you are enough, you are morally acceptable just by existing on the planet, right? It's got nothing to do with what you do. You are sort of unconditionally allowed here. And if possible, you should feel a kind of unconditional approval of yourself doesn't mean everything you do you should approve of very important distinction that i think people excuse me a very important distinction that i think people miss and that causes all sorts of problems in the um modern world but because it makes people sort of indulge their worst behavior but but the person i think can remain absolutely uh you you should just accept yourself uh, as a person and and uh, and that your sort of right to exist on the planet is absolute. You can certainly do things that you maybe ought to feel bad about having done, and you can do things that you ought to feel proud of having accomplished. But I think separating that off from any sort of global rating of yourself as a person is a really healthy way to be. So you get up in the morning and you say, if today goes terribly, I'm okay. Today goes brilliantly. I'm not, haven't suddenly become like the king of the world. Uh, I'll try to do good acts instead of bad acts, and I'll try to be compassionate towards people instead of being uncompassionate. But this sort of basic idea that, like, you know, you have a right to be here 
is untouched, whatever happens. Beautiful, beautiful. What a great way to end the podcast. So Oliver, thanks so much for coming on. And yeah, for everybody listening. So uh, yeah, I'm wrapping this up. I'm doing an outro. This is a weird, weird episode. because <laughs> kind of like I said uh, at the beginning, we recorded this forever ago and then we were talking i'm like well your new book's coming out four thousand hours uh over four thousand weeks right uh and, and we decided to put that one out first so i actually went back and did some editing so anyway so make sure you head down to the description and grab this copy of uh oliver's uh previous book the antidote it is such a great phenomenal book it's like not not like in your face self-help but like Oliver just has a great perspective on life and everything so make sure you grab a copy of this book follow him over on Twitter and yeah if you would like um only down below uh the other episode I did with Oliver about his newest book uh 4,000 weeks um because it's all about time management it's called 4,000 weeks time management for mortals and we talk about some great 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 topics in that and that book is out now it's getting a ton, a ton of great reviews. Everybody's loving it. And I'm super glad he was able to come on and talk about that as well. So if you want, if you need some good reading, if you want some life-changing books, go grab both of these books. All this linked down in the description down below. All right. But anyways, before I let you go, a few things as usual. If you're new here, well, if you're new here, I guess it's not as usual. So if you're new here, make sure you're following me over on Twitter and Instagram at the rewired soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes uh any other projects that i'm working on i write a ton i am um you know uh working on another book and i i love chatting with all of you that's one of the best parts of my day because i like diving into topics that you know aren't always covered on the podcast and i like picking your brains and getting your thoughts and and all of that you guys inspire some of the questions that i ask on the podcast and some of the things i write so if you're not yet make sure you follow me at the rewired soul or on instagram and twitter and if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're following it and you're subscribed. And a great way, a great way to support the podcast. It doesn't cost you a penny. All right. First, share this episode. If you thought Oliver and I covered some good topics, if you think someone on your, your follower list on Twitter or Instagram or one of your friends on Facebook, if you think somebody could benefit from this episode, go out there, go share it, help spread the word. Uh, we'll grow this beautiful little community that we got here. And that really helps the podcast out a lot. And the second thing is head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. And I mentioned this in the last episode. I think I think you can now review podcasts over on Spotify now. And actually, I have my, uh, you know, my Spotify open. So I'm trying to see. Maybe that was like some beta thing. I don't know. But if you're following me on Instagram or Twitter, let me know if you can uh, leave ratings and reviews now on Spotify. But if you can. If you can, leave a rating, leave a review uh, on the Rewired Soul podcast. All right. But uh, some other ways you can help support the podcast, what I am doing here. Um, one, uh, become a paid subscriber over on Substack. $5 a month or $50 a year. You get uh, the episodes a day early and it helps support what I'm doing. You can also head over to the rewiredsoul.com. I have self-published uh, a few books, working on another one, which I'm kind of debating on working with a publisher who knows but i actually have some authors coming on where i talk to them about self-publishing versus working with a publisher but yeah head over to the rewiredsoul.com i've written books on mental health addiction recovery all that kind of stuff all right and lastly lastly uh you know like oliver and i talked about there comes a certain point where you might need some outside help uh there is an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy this is a service that i've personally used my therapist uh 
save my butt on numerous occasions. So when you sign up, it's affordable, it's online, it's convenient. You get a licensed therapist from your state. So go ahead and check out that affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy, all right? So another huge, huge thanks to Oliver for taking the time to come on the podcast and chat about his book, The Antidote. Make sure you head down in the description, follow him, grab a copy of The Antidote, get a copy of 4,000 Weeks if you haven't yet. Oliver is just one of my favorite, one of my absolutely favorite writers. So make sure you check that stuff out. And for all of you, uh, yeah, I should have another episode or two for you next week. I got a lot of really cool, cool guests coming on. So yeah, so stay tuned and have an amazing rest of your day. And I will see you next time.